Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis 48. So, Opsel family. And uh, Miss, uh, Mrs. Flynn over there. This, these folks in the second row here have known me since I was about four or, well, about five years old. So I encourage you, don't listen to a word. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's see. Where's, where's, where's Brian? Hey, Brian, can you get this guy out of here? <laughs> uh, dear, dear special people from uh, Foothills Community Church here this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the sweet fellowship of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for what Roger has brought before us also, Lord. We desire, Father, the genuine article of fellowship with you. And I pray, Father, that your Spirit would refresh our hearts this morning from your word. Lord, no doubt there are many different emotions uh, present with a lot of different things going on in a lot of different lives. And the miracle, Father, that blows me away week after week is how you, by your Spirit and your Word, touch the lives of each and every one, Lord. This is your flock. You are their shepherd. And so, dear Father, I pray for your ministry and their lives this morning. Let all of us, I pray, Father, come with a heart ready to surrender to the Word, with a desire to be shaped however you point out to us, Father God. So may your blessing be on the preaching of your Word this morning, and that the hearing, Father God, would also be a spirit-wrought gift for the glory of your name. Amen. Last words are lasting words. I heard that from Dennis Chris a number of years ago. Last words are lasting words. Those last few words that you may hear from a friend before they move, or the last words you hear from somebody before they, they pass, or you fill in the blank, but last words are lasting words. The last afternoon that I spent with my grandfather was one of the sweetest experiences of, of my life, will be one of the sweetest experiences of my life. As we talked ministry and spent time together, as we had done a lot of times before, Grandpa was a pastor as well, and um, giving him a hug, telling him I love him, he said he loved me, and he died a half an hour after, after that. Um, and that afternoon is just utterly precious to me. It was kind of funny because over the years, Grandpa would always buy the coffee. He wouldn't let me buy. He just always bought the coffee. And I said, Grandpa, today I'm buying. <clears throat> For the first time in this relationship, since I am, I think it was 30-something, um, I'm going to buy. For some reason, I left my credit card at home. <clears throat> <laughs> and I made this big deal about buying. 
it took Grandpa a few minutes to catch up. He was on uh, nasal cannula, breathing in oxygen. It took him a while to catch his breath. He laughed so hard. And um, last words are lasting words. This morning, we're going to look at some of the last words from Jacob. Now, <clears throat> I know that at times we can come to the Word, it's particularly Old Testament narrative, and, and these Bible characters can be just that, Bible characters. And it doesn't have uh, the real deep impact on us. But i got to tell you, and I've said this week after week, and I'll say it again, Jacob has become a very important person to me. Going from the trickster lying to his father to a man who has come to know the Lord in a profound, profound way up to this point this morning where he is going to be, he is just about dying. Jacob is a very, very profound, special character in my life, and I hope he is to you. And so some of his last words are profoundly lasting words. Words that we should not miss. And here's what I, here's what I want you to get. Okay, this, this is the tricky part of, for the preacher. Because you could read this and you could not see yourself anywhere in the text. And you come away and go, a history lesson from the pulpit this morning. That's really neat that Jacob and Joseph and Joseph's kids had that kind of connection. But what I want you to get in this message this morning, this has everything to do with you. And that's not preacher talk. I really believe with all my heart, theologically, this has everything to do with you. And so do your best to not simply read this as somebody else's story. Because what Jacob does here has a monumental impact on your life and on your eternity. So, chapter 48, we're going to cover the entire chapter. Yes, we are. <clears throat> Look at verses 1 to 4. Now it happened after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Then it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. So Israel strengthened himself and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you an assembly of peoples. And I will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. So remember, 17 years roughly has passed. He's lived another 17 years, or just shy of another 17 years, since the time he was talking about his death already. He's done that a couple times throughout our, the narrative. But now he's taken ill. First time in the Bible where you hear about illness. So he's taken ill, and now Jacob says, um, or Joseph rather, gets word that Jacob is ill, but it's more than ill, obviously, he's on his way to die. Joseph goes to his father and brings the two boys with him. Remember, these two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, Hebrew names, not Egyptian names, but both born in Egypt during Joseph's time while he was there, takes these two sons with him to go and visit his father. Now, <clears throat> the, the drama of the scene really is built up by, this, by the narrative. So if you've been here week after week, 
you, you're there with me. If not, I just encourage you maybe go back and read a little bit of the storyline of Jacob. But if you've been here, you know this is a crescendo of sorts. This is building up where Jacob has mourned so severely at the loss of his boy, and now he's returned. He's got him back. Jacob has gone through so many difficult things with great evil, great difficulty, but also tremendous blessings. Like God's grace just off the charts in the life of this guy. Considering who Jacob was and considering all that he has received from the Lord, he is a man who is walking in grace. So Joseph goes to his father. Upon their arrival, Jacob musters up energy for the moment. You've been there, or at least maybe not been there, but been there with somebody who was. When you know they're sick, you know they're not feeling well, But they muster up enough energy because they want you to have them. They want to be a good host or a good hostess. I've been there at hospital visits where you go to see somebody before surgery or rather after surgery or they're really sick. And they go, oh, Pastor Dan. And they kind of help themselves up because they they want to greet you. They want to show that proper greeting and bring you in. How much more for Jacob that Joseph is now coming before him. Now, it's fascinating to me. The irony is not lost on me that he is now basically blind. So Jacob is blind. Joseph and his two boys are going before him to receive a blessing. Does that sound familiar to you? As Jacob went before Isaac, and Isaac's eyes were dim, he couldn't recognize him, and he put the hair on his arms, and he wore his brother's clothes and snuck in to lie to him. Beloved, this could not be any more the polar opposite experience for what Jacob gets with his son Joseph. And so Joseph comes before him. Now, Jacob does something here that could potentially be read as mere sentimentality. It's not. Look down at your Bible. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, that's Bethel, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I'll make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you an assembly of peoples, and I will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. If you're writing notes, Genesis 28, verses 12 to 14, and Genesis 35, verses 11 to 15. These are the two occurrences which the Lord comes to Jacob and approaches him. And again, beloved, what we've seen is when God approaches Jacob, he comes to him not saying, Jacob, what are you doing? Or how can you do this? What you should be doing? Rather, he comes and he blesses him. Now, the reason I say you could take this as sentimentality is you could say, as he's approaching his death, he starts reflecting about the good old days when God appeared to him. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually rather natural. I forget who said it, but somebody to the, to the likeness of Um, Somebody sees life most clearly when they're about to be done with it or something along those lines. As they're approaching death, they see life with greater clarity. And so what comes to his mind? God's been good to me. The Lord's richly blessed me. As I sit and ponder all that God has done in my life, I think about those two particular times where the sovereign of the universe actually came directly to one tiny little individual, and spoke blessings upon him and to him. Now, you could read that and say, that's really sweet that he's reflecting on God's grace in his life, which I believe he is. But I think it's deeper than that. And the reason I think it's deeper than that is because of what else is going to be coming in this chapter. 
So here's where I'm going. Jacob is not merely reflecting upon God's grace. Jacob is reiterating covenant promises that have gone from Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob, and now we'll go to Joseph. This is far deeper than, than Jacob merely, I say merely, looking back at the good old days where God met with him. No, he's wanting to make a point. He's looking back in order to point to the future, okay? So he's bringing Joseph's mind to the reality that God came to me. Particularly, the Lord sought me out of, out of this world and has come to me and revealed to me. And here's what he told me, Joseph. He told me that he was going to bless me. He was going to make a great nation out of me. He was going to bless everybody through my seed. And also, he was going to give this land to me as an everlasting possession. Identical promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What he's doing is he's passing down the covenantal blessing that's been given to this line. And now he's reiterating that to Joseph. So, um, as he brings this up, he's setting up what he's about to do in this passage, okay? So, I see this as kind of the foundation of what he's about to say to Joseph in reference to Ephraim and Manasseh. This is Jacob's reflections at the finish line, but also setting the foundation for his acts here in the rest of the passage. This is a retelling of the same covenantal promises given to Abraham, given to Isaac, and now to Jacob. Now, I want you just to ponder this for a second. Think about all of the details that have gone through this entire line from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now to Joseph. How many microscopic little things could have thrown this off the game? And how, how so intricately precise this has woven together perfectly. Our God is not a God of generalities. Our God is a God of precision. And so Jacob reiterates these precious promises. Verse 5. So now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Now right there, if I were Joseph in the Bible, it would say, say what? Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your kin that, you have, that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in the inheritance, their inheritance. Now as for me... When I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. What is he doing here? What's the method to this? Because here's the picture, right? You see it in the text. Joseph comes, dad's going to die. Boys, let's go see grandpa and let's go visit our father, my father. They go to him, he pulls him up, he says, God has been so good to me, God has richly blessed me, God's covenantal promises have passed from Abraham, Isaac, now to me, and now to you. By the way, the two sons that you had in Egypt, you know those guys, right? Ephraim and Manasseh, yeah, I know those, they're mine. What do you mean, Dad? He's going to unfold this, but what he's getting at is, this is an adoption ceremony. There's an adoption taking place here, which at first glance just strikes me a little odd. Like when you just read through the passage, you go, 
what are you doing here, Jacob? Why are you doing this? I think it'll make more sense as we go through. If it doesn't, my apologies. Jacob makes reference to the two sons of Joseph. The boys born in Egypt are Jacob's. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be Jacob's as Reuben and Simeon. Remember Reuben and Simeon, the first and the second born? These two that have made such a ginormous mess of things. If you would, turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And look at verse 1. We're going right back to Genesis, so don't, don't lose your place. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he profaned his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not recorded in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the ruler, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. These two are out, these two are in. So Jacob is actually saying, I want your two sons to be my two sons. And your two sons, now as my two sons, will gain the inheritance of the firstborn and the secondborn. I am making these two adopted because I want the inheritance to go to them. Now here's kind of the interesting thing in the text. He specifically is saying this in reference to blessing Joseph. But he's blessing the sons of Joseph, which I think any father would recognize the blessing of his children as a blessing to him. And so as Jacob says, this is going to be given to your sons, Joseph is going to be very much blessed in that. <clears throat> Jacob is adopting the two sons of Joseph. He's making them his own in order to bless them richly. Now, I thought this was kind of cool. If you think about it, these two boys were born in a foreign land in Egypt. They are not born in, in, in the land of Canaan. And this man, Jacob, is adopting them, bringing them into his name, bringing them into underneath his character, his person, in order that he may profoundly, richly bless them with the inheritance from him. Now think about your adoption as sons and daughters, how the Lord comes into your life, calls you unto himself, and the scripture says that he has brought you in by adoption. You are a foreigner. You are a foreigner to God. You are, in the sense that you're an unbeliever, backbiter, hater of God, the scripture says. God in his grace comes to you adopts you, makes you his own, and pours out his rich blessing upon you. And so there's a redemptive type of action that's being seen here in what's being done by Jacob. Look down at your Bible, back to Genesis. <clears throat> Verse 8, Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me. 
given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them, to, brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Then Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your seed as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed his face to the ground. Now, remember, when you read this, you can read it with the idea of two little boys. There's about 20 years here, so they're at least 20 years old. So these are young men that he's bringing before, um, before Jacob. And so numerous scholars have argued for, and I think, I think it's plausible, that this is actually a formal ceremony of adoption. So this is not merely something that just kind of happens and they're just talking back and forth. But when he says, who are these sons? Um, one commentator was saying he likened that to who gives this woman to be married to this man. Now, everybody at the wedding knows, your father and I do. But you're asking it. There's a ceremonial aspect here. And that as you walk through this, and I, it took me a little bit to wrestle with the text, I do see that this could very much be a more of a formal ceremony of adoption between Joseph and Jacob and the blessing that he calls upon them. He tells Joseph that other children that are born to you, they will be called by your name, but not these two. These two will be called by my name. And remember, beloved, we've talked about this so many different times. Name is far more than merely just the name. It's the whole person. When we say that we gather in the name of Jesus, we're not just saying the, 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 literally the name Jesus. We're saying we're gathering under the whole person, his character, his, his being. And so when Jacob says that they're going to be called by my name, it's far more than merely Jacob's sons. He's saying, my character, my inheritance, all that I am and all that I have is going to be over these two young men. Other children born to Joseph, they'll be called by these sons as well. Two sons in their inheritance, not Joseph. In the midst of this moment, Jacob recalls the loss of Joseph's mother, Rachel. And it's such a tender, sweet moment where he brings up the loss of his beloved. Remember, you guys, part of the connection between Jacob and Joseph is that this woman was the absolute love of his life. He worked for 14 years to try to get this woman. Now, you say, no, he worked seven years. No. No, he worked 14 years. Because the first seven was for Rachel. If you were to go within that seven years and say, hey, what are you doing this for? I'm doing it to marry Rachel. Next seven years, hey, what are you doing this for? I'm doing it to marry Rachel. What about Leah? Talk to Laban. <clears throat> this is the love of his life. And so when he looks in the face of Joseph, there she is. He looks in the face of Ephraim, Manasseh. Perhaps there's just a little twinkle in the eye or a little part of their smile, something. There's my Rachel. And so it doesn't surprise me that he brings up the fact of the loss of his beloved to his precious oldest son by her in this text. Numerous scholars believe this event to be a formal adoption ceremony between Jacob and Joseph. Now, we can't know for certain, as I said earlier, but it's possible that the actions taken here are following the order of service. Israel's eyesight, mostly dim and mostly gone, recognizes two figures in the middle and says, who are these? Joseph says, these are my two sons. Israel never thought he'd see Joseph alone, ever again. And now he sees Joseph and Joseph's children. 
Joseph presented both sons in proper placement for the older to be blessed. Now, if you follow the text carefully, remember, no ink is wasted in your Bible. So as Joseph takes the two boys, he places them up to his father, rightly placed. The older son at the right hand, the, the, the younger son at the left hand. The oldest gets the blessing. That's the way it is, that's the way it's always been, and that's the way it should be. Now, <clears throat> I'll go there in a little bit. Look down at your Bible. Verse 13, And Joseph took them from Ephraim, or took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward uh, Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been my shepherd throughout my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys." Now, you can unpack that for the rest of the afternoon. Notice, blessing on Joseph, actually blessing on the boys. But did you notice the Trinitarian language that's hidden in there? This is the God my fathers walked before. This is the God who's been my shepherd. And this is the angel, the messenger of God who has redeemed me from all evil. Don't let that be lost on you. I don't think it's there by coincidence that he would speak in the threes. Also, kind of an interesting little tidbit, first time in Scripture where shepherd is a reference to God. And now, if you know me, you know that that's one of my very, very favorite terms in the Bible in reference to the Lord. That he is the shepherd of my life. So here's this old man, 175 years of seeing God at work, and towards the end, you say, so who's been at work in all of this? The, son, the, the, the living one true God has been the shepherd of my soul. He's the one who has cared for me. He's the one who's fed me. He's the one who has been there day in, day out. The day I met Rachel, God was in the midst. The day I was surprised by Leah, God was in the midst. The day Laban that just was putting the screws to me, something crazy, God was there. The day I tricked my father, in my utter shame, when I tricked my father, God was still there. The day I was going to face Esau and I was scared to death because I thought, oh, this is it, he's going to get payback. God was there. And in two particular ways in Bethel, the Lord appeared to me and showed himself to me in profound tenderness and love. God was there. Every single moment of Jacob's life, a shepherd is on the watch. A big part of the job of shepherding, going back to that motif of actually looking over sheep, is being a watchman. Somebody that has, that has this, this watchful care over the sheep. I'm not, I'm not going to let them do too, much, too many dumb things. I'm going to keep an eye on them. I'm going to keep them alive, keep them safe, make sure that they live through the day, feed them. And Jacob, the best picture in his mind, remember, this is a man who has been a shepherd all of his days, says that there's actually been a far greater shepherd watching over me the whole time. The one 
who loved me, cared for me, fed me, and was in the midst of my deepest joy and my deepest pain, there was a shepherd on watch. And so I call upon his name to bless my grandkids today. May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who's been my shepherd throughout my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless these boys. And may my name live on in them. Again, my name, my character, my person, the inheritance, the promises, the covenants, or the covenant, all of this, may this rest upon them. They are gaining the birthright blessing from Jacob on these two sons. This is a monumental moment. Now, I realize when we read it, it may not have as, as, as monumental of a feel to it, because it's like, okay, there's an old blind guy who's wanting a blessing on his grandkids. Okay, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. There's a prophetic speech in the midst of this. Jacob is speaking on behalf of Jacob, but Jacob is speaking on behalf of God. You see this throughout the Old Testament in different portions where somebody calls down a blessing upon another person, and it's not merely some man asking for a blessing. He's speaking on behalf of God. The covenantal blessings being laid down on the two boys is not merely Jacob's intention. It is God through Jacob to the sons. This is a foretelling of God's grace on the sons of Joseph. This is not merely wishful thinking from a loving, tender grandpa. This is Almighty God speaking prophetically through Jacob. And so when he calls upon God for this blessing upon these two boys, there is monumental power going on here. And it goes so far against the accepted norm of the day. Um, there's such an embedded tradition here that as you'll see in just a few lines, Joseph gets a little bit miffed because dad's making a mistake. There's no mistake here. But it goes so far against the, the accepted norm of the blessing on the oldest. And for the blessing to not go on the oldest, not go on the second oldest, third, fourth, fifth, not even down to Joseph. But for the two sons to be adopted, the two grandsons to be adopted, and now them given that rank, now they're mine. They're called by my name and my inheritance, my blessing goes upon them. That would just blow the minds of the people of the day. Jacob is going against the norm in a profound way, and I would argue it's because he's being led by the Spirit of God to do that very thing in this moment. Verse 17. But Joseph saw that his father set his right hand on Ephraim's head, and it was displeasing in his sight. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become the fullness of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, 
By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh, not Manasseh and Ephraim. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So, the cross-armed blessing, as, as Joseph properly set them in front of his dad, dad's seated in the bed, dad rises up, and everything's set. This is the way it should be. And he should just go like that. And then he goes like that. And there's Joseph going, he's really lost it. <laughs> Dad, that's not the right way. I, I, put a, I set it up right. I know, I know. Who, that's how you're supposed to do it, Dad. Like this, and the boys are in the proper place, Manasseh and Ephraim. It's all ready. And I love the language of a tender father's response. I know. I know this is the way it's going to be. <clears throat> Goes contrary to the accepted, expected norm of the natural way the world works. But this is the way it's going to be. And grace will be poured out this way upon your two boys. I got to say, one of the most moving pieces to the story for me that I did not see at first study was, the, was not the obedience of Jacob. But I will say, the obedience of Jacob and what he does here is profoundly um, powerful. So profoundly powerful. Did you notice that one thing's made reference to Jacob in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 where Mark read? And it's this. In reference to Jacob and the way in which he did this blessing. But what boggles my mind is Joseph allows it. Think about everything Joseph is in agreement with here, beloved. They're going to leave Egypt. All that Egypt can afford is yours, Joseph, but they're going to leave. Yes, Father. And as they come back, they're going to be mine. They'll be under my name, not under your name. My inheritance will be for them, and they will be called sons of Israel, sons of Jacob. And they'll come back to this land that God promised he would give. Now, Joseph, how do you do with that? And what I see in the text is Joseph's humble obedience. But then it goes even farther where he does the cross-arm blessing, and even there, after Joseph corrects his father, the father's response, I know I know, but it stands. Joseph responds in faith. And you go, what? at some point, can we question dad here a little bit? My answer to that is I think Joseph recognizes someone far more powerful is in the midst of what's transpiring in front of him. Joseph is a man who has walked so closely with the Lord for all of his life. And in this moment, there appears to be a humble surrender to the will of God from Joseph. You can adopt my boys. You take them back to the land. They'll be richly blessed through you. The older will serve the younger. And may God's will be done through what he has spoken through my father. I will surrender to that which is totally against the grain of what is accepted in this world. And may God be glorified. 
And Joseph doesn't try to remove his dad's arms. He doesn't say, boys, let's go. He doesn't, there's nothing of that nature. There's a humble submission in Joseph to his dad. I got to say, the track record for Joseph is utterly stellar in his walk of obedience. And so he calls this blessing down upon the boys. And if you notice, look down at your Bibles. Verse 20, it says, And he blessed them that day, saying, But you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Kind of an interesting way of ending it, saying your inheritance has a special portion that's given to you. Joseph, you're my, you're my special. You're my special one. My oldest from my beloved. Someone that God took from me, but now he's given back to me. And I want a blessing upon you and a blessing upon your sons. The name of Joseph Jacob's sons will be used in the giving of future blessings forever. We must never come away from this chapter without recognizing the incredible faith of Joseph to accept God's will in the midst of such an interesting set of circumstances. So, here's a couple thoughts for you to ponder this morning. Number one. God's incredible faithfulness to his promises. Uh, this is a consistent theme you've probably heard most Sundays, okay, from, from our series in Genesis, but particularly in the life of Joseph. This is part, I think, 400. <clears throat> and as we've walked through this, we have seen the Lord's incredible faithfulness with all of the intricate set of circumstances, all the possible, oh no, this isn't going to work, Everything, God's sovereign decree, has come to fruition perfectly. Number two, God's grace does not follow the natural expected order of this world. God's grace does not follow the natural expected order of this world. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. And here's what I want the image to be in your mind clearly for the rest of the afternoon. I want you to think upon the cross-arm blessing. Because in the midst of that cross-arm blessing, as those arms were crossed, you go, whoa, 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 that's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, beloved, the way it's supposed to be is not how the Lord works. It's not how the Lord blesses. Grace, in order to be grace, is free. God in his sovereign freedom can do that which he wants. This bless, the cross-arm blessing is another reminder that God's grace is not owed and does not follow the world's natural expected order. Who are we that the sovereign of the universe has decided to pour his grace out upon us? Who are we that we can look God in the face and say, you should give grace to this person, maybe not to this person. You owe grace to this person, not to this person. So as I look at Ephraim and I look at Manasseh, it's obvious. You go, okay, Manasseh's the oldest, he gets the blessing, and Ephraim's the younger. He doesn't get the full blessing that he gets. And he goes, boom, 
And you go, no, 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 no. That's not the way this is supposed to work. There's an expectation upon you here, Jacob. There's an expectation here upon you, God. And God in His mercy through Jacob says, "Uh uh-uh. And rather, He comes in a different way. There's a piece of notes here that I need to find really quick. Oh, there we go. Seth over his brothers. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over Reuben. Ephraim over Manasseh. Here's what's so fascinating is that if you track through, you can see with great clarity, yes, the expectation is this is how this unfolds always, and yet how many times, there's a theme here, beloved, that you can track where God in His grace gives blessing to the younger over the older. And you can look at that and say, big deal, it's just a set of coincidences. Really? I doubt that. With all my heart, I doubt that because that set of coincidences will eventually lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no set of circumstances here that's an oops. God in His grace has a divine plan and He is at work. And so, for a moment, I think it's interesting, for a moment, Joseph says, no, Dad, it's supposed to be this way. It makes me think of Peter saying, uh, or cutting the ear off of the soldiers, trying to stop them from taking Christ. You don't know what you're talking about, Joseph. This is God's will. This is God's plan. He's at work. This will be a crossed arm blessing. For the Lord is free in His grace. Henry Morris said this. I found this pretty handy. This passing over the firstborn is one of the most striking features of the book of Genesis. So it was with Seth instead of Cain, Shem instead of Japheth, Abraham instead of Haran. Isaac instead of Ishmael, Jacob instead of Esau, and now it was Ephraim instead of Manasseh. Thus did God display his sovereignty and prevent anyone imagining that his blessing necessarily follows the line of natural privilege. God has again and again chosen the weak things of the earth and even those that are despised to set at naught those who are mighty. Grace is sovereign and by no means follows but rather opposes the course of nature. I've always found it fascinating over the years when somebody says, well, but you were born a Christ- or you were raised in a Christian home, so you're a Christian. How many non-believers do you know that were raised in Christian homes? Simultaneously, somebody goes, well, it's, a, it's an American religion, so somebody became a believer because they were born in this country. How many Americans do you know that aren't believers? And yet you can go to a strong, clear, pagan nation where Christians are deeply persecuted and find an underground church profoundly seeking to obey the Lord. Why? What's the answer to all this? Because our expectations of where God should work does not dictate to God how He will work. And I wish to surrender to what the Lord will do. This is what I think he meant when he said, all those who are being born again in John chapter 3 is like the wind. It blows here, it blows there, but nobody knows how it's going to accomplish what it's going to accomplish. God is free to do that which he wants. And so I'm going to get a pin made up for every last one of you of a crossed arm. No, I'm not really going to do that. 
But what a mental picture, what an image for me to have in my mind when I think that God is powerfully at work in the way he so chooses in the crossed arm blessing that goes totally contrary to the expectations of this world. Beloved, you and I have tasted the sweetness of the grace of God. And by nature, that was the direction I was running from. I see his sweet grace in my life, in your lives, and I'm so grateful for it. Let me pray.